You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. We are really glad that you're here. So uh, I was driving down the 405 freeway in Southern California. This is going back maybe uh, 2006. And uh, all of a sudden, as I'm driving down the highway, I felt the car start slowing down. I floored it and nothing happened. And, And that's when I had this, I don't know, a moment of clarity or something where I realized that I had been in Los Angeles for almost a week and I had never filled up the rental car. And uh, I don't know if you've had moments like that, but, and then, you know, because it's a rental, it's all the gauges are in different places than what you're used to. And so I looked down and I mean, you know how there's like, it's like almost on E and then it's on E, like we were well past E, like this thing was just swinging. And uh, so I cut across four lanes of traffic as I'm slowing down and I just take the nearest exit. Oh, by the way, I gotta tell you this. The whole time, uh, my wife was in the passenger seat and she's totally asleep. Um, The reason she was totally asleep was she was pregnant, but we didn't know that. We wouldn't find that out for another week or two. But uh, that's a different part of the story. But anyway, so I pull off the highway and as it is in Southern California, the way the highways are built, whenever you get off on an exit, you usually go down and, uh, and that's what happened is that, so it was actually good for me because we get off and then we end up going down to the light. So now I'm headed, uh, uh, we're, we're going downhill. So I'm picking up momentum and right as uh, I get to the, uh, to the intersection, the light turns green. There's nobody there. And I'm like, there is a God in heaven who loves me. And I make the left and I'm still picking up good momentum. I'm going 30, 40 miles an hour. And then I see the gas station, I see a big sign for a gas station. I'm like, perfect. So as I make the turn, I still got good momentum. And then I make the right now um, because that's the, it looks like that's the street where the gas station is. So as I make the turn, I then realize that the gas station is at the top of a hill, <laughs> which I mean, at this, it may as well have been on the moon. I mean, it just it was the equivalent. It didn't matter. So anyway, so um, I, I make the turn and then I'm getting on this hill and it's just, we're not going, we're not going far. And then uh, it, the car um, is coming to a halt. So now I have two things that I have to do. The first thing I have to do is wake up my wife who's asleep. I'm like, honey, how are you? You good? Hey, uh, quick thing, um, we just ran out of gas. So I just need you to slide over and uh, drive the car uh, while I get out and push. And uh, so she's kind of like, okay, yeah, that's cool. So I get out and start pushing. Now, can I ask this? How many of you have ever had to get out and push? Okay. Is there anything more humiliating than having to get out and push? Because by the way, it's not that, <laughs> it's not that like, you know, there's like smoke coming out and they're like, oh wow, poor guy, the, the engine just blew. No, the, you get out and push running out of gas, you're just irresponsible. Like that's what was happening. Like I was just irresponsible and I, I ran. And then, you know, you, you people, every, I don't know why, everyone has to slow down and watch you like they're looking like this man, why is he outside of his vehicle? Little kids are like, why does the man look like he's going to explode? Like I'm pushing a 5,000 pound car, kid. That's why. And so anyway, so as I'm pushing the car, 
These two guys, I'm telling you, this is like something out of a movie. These two guys, I didn't realize there was a car dealership right next door, but as I'm pushing the car, these two guys jump over the bushes. And so they're like, hey, do you need some help? And I'm like, is there like a camera around here? I'm like, yeah, I do. And so the, they, they were um, these two uh, car salesmen. And so they come out and they help me push the car. To this day, I believe that those two men were angels disguised as car salesmen. And I mean, and what a disguise. No one would connect, ever think that someone who works at a car dealership would have any connection to God in any way. And so it's just, it really worked out well. And uh, so anyway, moral of the story is that, you know, coasting is only going to get you so far. At some point, it takes fuel to get over the next hurdle and get ultimately where God wants you to go. And, um, and I mean, because if we're being honest, I mean, does coasting in any area of life get you where you want it to go? I mean, like if you go into work tomorrow and you say, you know, you talk to your boss and you want to talk to him and, and you say, hey, boss, man, I, I don't know what you call your boss if you have a boss. But anyway, you call him like, I say, I just want to tell you that I attribute my performance to my commitment to coasting at your establishment each and every day. Like, I just don't know that that's going to go well, right? Um, you know, if you're like, well, I like to coast in school. You know where coasting in school gets you? Summer school. That's where that, that's where that ends up. And by the way, coasting in your relationships gets you nowhere. And coasting in your walk with God does not lead to a faith that's alive. Because faith is something that needs to grow or it will wither. And it's only a growing faith that leads to an unshakable life. It's because if faith needs to grow, then the, it begs the question, how does faith grow? And, and there's honestly, there's several ways in which this happens. And we're going to look at three in particular, three that um, don't get a lot of attention, but should. As we watch the Apostle Paul ministering to people over the course of his three-year ministry in Ephesus. So if you're just joining us, we're in message number 29, if you can believe that, in, in our series in the book of Acts. And um, just to give you a little review, the book of Acts is this wonderful book in the New Testament that gives us an account of the growth, development, and multiplication of the early church after the resurrection of Jesus. And we've been following the Apostle Paul, this rabbi who was radically converted to Christianity, and he is on his third missionary journey. And we're going to see how Paul engages with people to see their faith grow. And, and, and here's why this should matter to all of us, is because all of us want to see our faith grow because it's the only way to mature. It's the only way to get to maturity as a believer. And you don't want the tests of life to stumble your faith. Instead, you want them to build your faith. That's why, and I put it in your notes, in 2 Corinthians 13, Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthians, his second letter, he says, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you've failed the test of genuine faith. So if there's so much confusion uh, about spiritual growth, um, about what it means to be mature, I mean, so how do we know if we're growing? How do we keep growing? How do we kind of keep stoking that, that fire? And so what I want to do in our time together is um, as we observe just what's happening in Paul's life and Paul's ministry, we're going to clear the confusion and we're going to see um, how faith grows in the operation of normal life. So we're going to start chapter 19 of the book of Acts. You see it in your Bible up on the screen. It says this, and it happened while Paul was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. 
And finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, we have not so much heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to him, into what then were you baptized? And so they said, into John's baptism. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were all about uh, 12 in all. And if you pause there and give me your attention. So let's talk about how do we grow spiritually. And, and we're going to talk about some things that I think don't get talked about. So number one is this, that growing believers obey the Bible. A lot of times you'll hear people say, growing believers read the Bible. And that's important too. However, it's not just that we uh, we want to read the Bible, we want to read it and obey it. So let's set the scene. Now, one of the challenges that we have, and if you've been at Calvary for a while, every once in a while I bring this up, you got to understand that the chapter and verse divisions were added later. So the Bible is the Bible, but once again, um, originally there were no chapter and verse divisions, right? People, the, the, these letters were written, the gospels were written, but then over the course of time, um, it became easier to kind of track down, because when I said Acts 19, we could all kind of find where we were starting from, and that's what happened. So it was about the 1300s, the chapters uh, got added, and then about the 14 and change or so, about 15th century, um, the uh, verse divisions were added. But the problem is, sometimes the, verse di the chapter divisions come in a weird place. And so we finished chapter 18 last week talking about this guy named Apollos, but that story is very important to the story that we read here at the beginning of the chapter. P Apollos uh, was, if you were with us, that he was this powerful preacher. He was Jewish, but he grew up in Alexandria in Egypt. He was an eloquent guy, very learned, but he only knew of the baptism of John. That is the baptism of John the Baptist. And so he went about preaching in synagogues that we need to repent because the Messiah is coming. And so then he, um, he's, he's, in, he's in Ephesus, he's, he's preaching, and then um, this couple that's there named Priscilla and Aquila, they hear him preaching like, wow, this guy's really fantastic. But all he knows, and he's saying, you know, the Messiah is coming. And they're like, hey, we should tell him the Messiah showed up. This will blow his mind. And so then they take him aside and it says in the chapter, last chapter that they explain the way of the Lord to him more fully. And then he goes on uh, to Corinth. But then as we read, Paul shows up in Ephesus and he runs into some disciples. Well, what disciples? Disciples of Apollos. That is people who uh, were Jewish or converts to Judaism and saying, yeah, we're getting ready for the Messiah. And so then, you know, Apollos leaves because he kind of learns a little more, but he, he, didn't, he didn't pass it on to those guys. And so Paul shows up at Ephesus and he sees, he's talking to these guys and he's like, hey, what, what baptism were you baptized? Like, oh, we're Baptizing John's baptism. Like, okay, well, that was like to get people ready, but the Messiah showed up. And then they believe, and then he baptizes them. It says they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, um, I've tried to do this whenever it's come up in the book of Acts, is talk about this uh, little bit of confusion that comes up when it comes to baptism. Because Jesus said to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then um, a couple of times in the book of Acts, it says they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And it's like, well, which are, are we supposed to do? The cases where it shows up in the book of Acts, people are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They are either Jews or converts to Judaism. 
And so what happens is if they are Jews or converts to Judaism, then they know who the father is. And many times, with the, not in this case, but in the other cases, they would have been familiar with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is mentioned in, in the Old Testament. And so these guys, whether maybe they were newer converts to Judaism or whatnot, so um, when they were being baptized, they already knew the God of Israel, they were being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus because they were believing that Jesus was the Messiah. And that's really the point. Whenever it says that, it's that these Jews are receiving, uh, coming to know Jesus, and that they are accepting him as the Messiah. Now, but it does bring up an important point, and I'm always struck by this when I read it, is that there's no hesitation on the part of these believers. They were eager to obey God. And, And this is why, listen, when you first become a Christian, that baptism is the first order of business. Now, you're not saved uh, because of baptism. You're saved because of your faith in, in Christ Jesus. But baptism is the first order of business. Why? Because um, it's a simple step. And the thing that's wonderful about it is the simple step, and it is an external picture of what's happening in your life internally. And so I guess it was about 12 years ago or so. I, I remember this is back when we were at meeting in the high school. I was baptizing my niece and nephew in the midst of baptizing a whole bunch of people. But my, my daughter, Mia, was five at the time, and she thought, like, hey, can I get baptized too? And I'm like, Mama, you're five. You're a little young. Let's wait uh, until you're about eight, and then you really understand what, what baptism is. And um, she was not very happy with that answer. And so that night, uh, my wife puts Mia in the bath. And um, Carrie goes in to check on her, and while she's there checking on her in the bath, Mia is going like this in the water, and, and Carrie's like, Mama, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, I'm baptizing myself. And, uh, and so, and she's like, no, Mia, you're, you can't baptize yourself. And she's like, no, really, I can. Watch me. And, and then she does it again. And, and so, anyway, um, we just can, after she turned eight, we just did it again to be official, but... Um, but anyway, but what I love about this is the decision to obey God. And it's what mature people do. They seek to obey God. And if, if you've given your life to Jesus and you haven't been baptized, and listen, that's the next step. Um, we're doing a baptism next week. In fact, on your connection card, you can sign up for it and, uh, and be part of it. But let me tell you, and you'd say, well, I don't know. That's a big step. And uh, it's not a bigger step than giving your life to Jesus. In fact, when, whenever I talk to someone who's hesitant about being baptized, th- they'll say something like this, well, I, I, I think I'm just not ready, which is essentially code for my life isn't together enough. Now, let me tell you what gets your life together. What gets your life together is actually obeying God and uh, doing the things that God tells you to do. And that's what baptism does. Baptism starts to put your life together because you're doing the things that God is asking you to do. And baptism, and I've said this so many times, that baptism sets a pattern of obedience in your life and just begins to change the trajectory of your life. And, and, and some of you are like me, that you were born in a tradition that baptized infants. And uh, I was baptized an infant. I have the pictures to prove it in case the baptism police ever show up. Um, but there isn't one instance in the Bible that records an infant baptism. Uh, the reason is because baptism is supposed to come from a person who is a follower of Jesus and desires to obey him. So if you say, well, I was baptized as a baby, that's awesome, so was I. It's a, great, it's, it's a fine tradition. Um, but there comes a point in time in a person's life where they've got to decide to follow Jesus on their own. And this is why obeying God in this matter is so important. Because if you can't obey God in things that are easy, 
you will never pass the big tests in life where you've got to trust him because he's all that you've got. But when a person is baptized, it's what the passage that I left for you there in, uh, in Romans uh, chapter 6, that you go into the water identifying with Jesus in his death, and then you come out of the water identifying with Jesus in his resurrection, or what Paul says in Romans 6, in the newness of life. We, we, we come up in the newness of life and grow as we obey God and leave the old person behind. More on that in a little bit. But look what happens in verse 8. It says, and they went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And if you pause there and give me your attention, second thing that I, I, I want to tell you, if the first thing is, is that uh, growing believers obey the Bible, the second thing is this, if, if you're a note taker, growing believers do hard things. Now, it's hard to see what's going on if you don't understand kind of culturally what's taking place. So let me give you a little bit of background. In that culture, and by the way, this is true in some parts of the world, even to this day, people worked from early in the morning, basically from sunrise until about 11 a.m. Um, at that time, they would break for lunch and then work didn't resume until 4 p.m., kind of getting out of uh, the hottest part of the day. Then they would go back to work until the sun went down. Now, so they had this midday break for about five hours. And so Paul is, um, has this opportunity because everybody's taking a break. And so during this five-hour break, most scholars agree that this is when he went to that school and he was teaching in the school of uh, Tyrannus. And um, now everybody's kind of understanding uh, what, what it is that's, um, that's happening there. Did I read the text? Did I read verses 8 through 10? I did? I'm going insane. Because I, I just did this like half an hour ago, so I just want to make sure. Wow, all right, I had a senior moment. Forgive me. Um, so, Because <laughs> I'm reading, I'm like, did I talk about that? And it's like, I, I did talk about that like 20 minutes ago before in the first service. Wow, okay. I'm good. I'm good, I promise. All right. So it seems like Paul was teaching in that, in that school, but here's what happens. So the school is called, and this is so funny, it's called the School of Tyrannus, which is not a proper name because Tyrannus is a Greek word that means tyrant. And so, and I, I, I'm sorry, I just can't imagine parents in that culture seeing their newborn child like, look at our little tyrant, this little despot. You know what I mean? It's like, no, nah, it's, it's probably not a proper name that was given to him. Instead, it was, uh, but I do believe that it could have been a name that the students gave to their teacher. That I could totally, uh, because that's how nicknames begin. I had a friend in high school um, whose name is Keith, but uh, whatever reason, the first day of 10th grade, he, I had been out all summer. I was in Boston almost the entire summer visiting my dad. I got home like three days before school started, and um, so I hadn't seen any of my friends all summer. But anyway, I get to school, first day of school, and um, he, my friend Keith decided, and he was like a normal person when I left that summer, but apparently without my influence, things went haywire. But um, so the first day of school, he was wearing pink shorts, pink socks, white sneakers with pink shoelaces, and a, and a pink shirt that said in hot pink letters, you can't touch this. 
Now, just to give you a little context, MC Hammer was on the rise in this era of time, and so it was a dark time. And anyway, um, but you can imagine someone going to school like that, and you can only imagine the nickname that he got. Um, he got the nickname Pinky, and um, and it, it and let me tell you something, Pinky stuck. And so for all of 10th grade, 11th grade, and 12th grade, it didn't matter what that kid wore. It didn't matter how many Metallica and Slayer t-shirts he wore after that. He was pinky until the day of graduation. Now, um, in, a, in a strange turn of events, before he was pinky, uh, he was just Keith, and uh, I met him on the, my first day of school there when I'd moved from Boston, and um, I, I, I met him. I, was, uh, I went to school up in uh, Coral Springs at Terravella. That's where I graduated from. Spent five great years there. And, uh, <laughs> and um, I, I, I walked into my sixth period earth space science class with my teacher whose name was Mr. Keener. And um, I sat down and I introduced myself to um, Keith and this other guy named um, Alan, who was a great friend of mine too. Uh, and I said, hey, how you doing? My name's Rob. Because when I was in Boston, then my friends would call me Rob. And, um, and, and Pinky said, um, you don't look like a Rob to me. You look like a Bob. And I'm like, no, it's actually not. It's not Bob. It's Rob. And uh, then the next day, I, um, I had introduced myself to somebody else. And I'm like, hey, hi, my name's Rob. And they're like, oh, you're the new kid, right? I'm like, yeah. They're like, yeah, somebody told me your name was Bob, though. And uh, I'm like, well done, Pinky. Uh, and so here we go, right? So I've written nine books. They all say Bob. So congratulations. You win. Um, I'll buy you something pink. Um, so anyway, now, here's what, I want you to, here's what I want you to notice, right? Paul is preaching in the, the school, uh, this synagogue. So he gets to Ephesus. He starts preaching in the synagogue. And he is there for about three months. When the door closes, it says that people became antagonistic towards the way. Now, if you're not, um, a lot of people don't know this, but that's what Christianity was called. Followers of Jesus were called followers of the way. Um, they were called Christians in Antioch. We talked about that in chapter 11. But pretty much throughout the Roman Empire, people that had heard of Christianity, uh, it was, Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And so he was, um, they were considered followers of that way. Now, so when that door closes after three months, he finds an opportunity um, at, the, at the tyrant school, the dictator school. And so now previously... Um, Paul would go to every city. And this is really interesting. Paul, and, and if you've been following our study in the book of Acts, you know this, that Paul would go from city to city. He would preach there for a while. A church would begin and then he would move on. But when he goes to Ephesus, he spends three years there and he does something different. He stays in Ephesus and then all of these churches start getting birthed out of the church at Ephesus all over the place. And so in fact, um, it, it says in verse 10 that we read, it says, and this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, if you see the map, and um, oh, you got me the new map. Thank you, guys. I brought the wrong map in the last service, and then I got so tied up talking to people, I forgot. But these good people back there got me the right map. Thank you, guys. We love you. And... Um, don't let that ever, thing ever happen again. And so don't mess around. Okay, so now Paul sets, he starts at Antioch. This is his third missionary journey. Brand new map, guys. I know you guys get excited about this. So he starts there, and then Paul makes his way through what's called the upper regions and makes his way to Ephesus. Now, 
from Ephesus, instead of going everywhere, he stays in Ephesus and all of these churches, Colossae, Laodicea, uh, Hierapolis, uh, uh, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, all of these churches start. Now, if, you're, if some of those names sound familiar, it's because if you've read the book of Revelation, the seven letters that are written to the seven churches are in this circular, this is actually the postal route of uh, how mail worked in the ancient world, in Asia Minor anyway. So all of these major, uh, major churches were, were sent out um, from the church in Ephesus. So now all these churches are uh, getting planted and birthed. And, and it's an important thing to note. This is the first instance of a church meeting in a rented facility. So typically, uh, when the church begins, we see that the church meets in homes. We see that the church meets um, when they're in Jerusalem. Uh, they meet in the outer court of the temple. But the church at Ephesus met in the school of the tyrant. And um, I, I can't even imagine inviting people to your, the church, right? Hey, I'd love for you to come to our church. God's doing great things. Oh, that's cool. Where do you guys meet? Like, oh, we meet over at the tyrant school. And, uh, but, our, but we promise our pastor's not a tyrant. He's a nice guy. And, um, and that's, you know, we had that when we met in a movie theater for a few years. We, um, you know, you're meeting in a, in a theater, but there's movies going on. And so, you know, that little LED sign that they would have over the door, it'll tell you what movie's playing. And sometimes the movie would be somewhat questionable as far as trying to, you know, so it's like, you know, it'd be like, you know, Poltergeist 2, you know, like the remake. It's like, oh, that, that's, oh, is this is a haunted service. Uh, and so there was always like something weird that was happening. And then I remember one day I got to the theater uh, for, and we were getting ready for church and over the door, it said big fat liar. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, this is where I draw the line. And so we got, we're going to have to do something about this. So anyway, they were nice enough to change it for us. Now, when Paul, <laughs> true story, by the way, when Paul was in Ephesus uh, during these three years, he writes his first letter to the Corinthians. Now, Paul writes two letters, first and second Corinthians. He writes the first one while he's in Ephesus. And this is what he says at the end of the book. And this is powerful. He says this in first Corinthians 16, while he's still there, he says, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost for a great and effective door has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Now, I want you to think about that. Paul sees the adversaries as a response to the open door, not negating the open door. And this is really important because sometimes we have this tendency to think that the presence of adversaries means that God is not with you. And I, and I disagree with that. Trials in your life does not mean that God is absent, just the opposite. It means that God is at work in your life and uh, the enemy is giving you uh, some, some opposition. But listen, whatever the trial or difficulty, God is at work in the trial you're experiencing because there is good fruit that can come from a bad trial. So, um, and, so and I'll tell you what happens. You know, uh, this week, my wife and I, on Thursday, we celebrate our 27th wedding anniversary. And uh, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And that is really more of a testimony to her. Being married to her is very easy. I am a bit of a handful. And so that is really a testament to her. Anyway, um, but we, uh, so we were out and then, you know, the manager comes over and just starts asking us, you know, tell us about how that, you know, how it works. It's a great conversation. But, every, you know, what'll happen is when you've been married for a while is that um, like newly engaged couples will ask, you know, what does it take to have a good marriage? And, uh, and I'll, you know, there's kind of, and, and I tell them everything you expect that I would say, right? You know, 
um, honor God first, put your spouse before yourself, invest in your relationship. And sometimes they'll be like, oh, so that's what it takes to have a great marriage. I'm like, no, no, no. You ask what it has to have a good one. If you want a great one, there's another thing, and that is um, that you've got to be able to go through some pain um, because that's what that, that, that takes. And, and when, a couple, when a couple goes through hardship and then lives to tell the tale, those are some of the greatest marriages that you're ever going to meet. And it's not because they invited the difficulties. Don't misunderstand. It's that trials are part of life. And because they didn't give up, their marriage became unbreakable. But in the moment, in the season of trial, that's the time that we have to remember that these things come into our lives for a reason. But doing hard things, doing hard things, marrying someone and staying married to them for your entire life, that is a hard thing. It is a commendable thing and an honorable thing to do. But it's not easy. But listen, maturity comes when we do hard things. The problem is we live in a culture that doesn't want to do hard things anymore. Things get difficult and we want to bail. And listen, greatness is only produced by doing hard things. So um, I've been playing guitar since I was 15. So about 10 years now. And uh, (laughs) that joke gets funnier and funnier. Um, So now my two oldest kids uh, who are 17 and 14, they are playing guitar. And, um, and it's so amazing. Having musicians in the house is so fun. And um, it, like people are walking around, guitars are everywhere. People are leaving guitars everywhere. It's great. Lots of picks being found in the dryer. It's great. All of it is great, right? And so, but uh, when, when this was true, when Xander was learning, it's true when Mia um, is, is learning. And um, what, what they found is that there's a part of playing guitar that hurts. And that is that when you're first learning, you have to develop calluses on your fingers. And so the way you get calluses is you keep playing until your fingers develop blisters. Then you keep playing until the blisters pop. Then it's just raw skin. And then you keep playing, and then your fingers bleed a little bit. And then after they bleed a little bit, sometimes they blister again. Not always, but after they blister and pop and bleed, you start developing thicker skin or calluses. And once your fingers get calloused, um, they don't, doesn't hurt anymore. And, uh, and, and of course you keep playing. So you're getting, you're getting better. And so, but this is, this is the rite of passage for any musician. And every time I hear music, oh man, my fingers hurt. Like, yeah, it's supposed to hurt. You got, that's part of doing hard things. And, um, but see science and American commerce has developed a way for us to avoid all this altogether and just start playing. So let me show you what's been become available to us. Um, these fingertip protectors. This is available on Amazon for $7.99. And I've got to be honest with you. First of all, this is an abomination. <laughs> the other thing that, bother, the thing that bothers me the most is the one on his thumb. Because, okay, let me explain to you that guitar playing is guitar playing. But the over the thumb technique, like you're going to like, you're playing something and then you're gonna, you move your thumb over to play the bass note. Um, that's an advanced strategy, all right, on guitar. And the fact that this guy has the audacity to put one on his thumb like, oh, I'm so good, I do the over the thumb technique. No, you don't, sir. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I had to get hot uh, over this, but I'm so upset over this thing. And um, now, here's, let me tell you something about the fingertip protector. 
Um, it, it, it's the thing that's supposed to keep you from feeling any pain. But I want you to think about this. Would you listen to any musician, any artist that wore these? I mean, think about it. You, got, you spent good money to get tickets to go see Ed Sheeran, right? And Ed Sheeran is the guy's playing stadiums. And, and Ed comes out, and you know, he comes out by himself, and he has like these, these pedal things that are just loopers, so he kind of puts everything together. And then he comes out, and he's like, all right, guys. Well, he's British. He'd be like, all right, mates, we're here. I don't have a great British accent, but I'm working on it. And, uh, but he'll say, all right, guys, I'm so excited you're here. I've got some great songs to play for you. If you just give me a second, let me just put on my fingertip protectors, you know. And then, of course, because they're British, they have like some weird name for it, uh, you know, you know. Uh, my thumb stoppers. You know, they have like, you know how British, you know, like chips are crisps and crisps are crackers and cookies are not like biscuits and biscuits I don't even think exist. Uh, it's just, anyway, like this is why we had to start a revolution in this country. Like we just had to break that. Like, I'm sorry. You do your own thing. Keep driving on the wrong side of the road. We're going to do it right over here. All right. I'm sorry. But anyway, but honestly, <laughs> honestly, you would never... You would never listen to a musician like that. Why? Because, and, and here's why, because you innately understand something, that a musician that won't endure the pain in his fingers will not endure the pain of experiencing something enough to write a song that resonates with anyone. You see, and this is what we don't realize it. This is what we're asking God for. God, this is hard. Could you give me the fingertip protector version of this? And it's like, no, you don't want that. Why? Because maturity comes through doing hard things and being faithful. Look at what happened. And that's why, look what happens next. Verse 11, it says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons were brought from his body, so the sick and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. And if you pause there and give me your attention, um, the third thing, if you're a note taker, is that uh, growing believers aren't swayed by circumstances. And, and this, is really, this is really powerful based on what we're going to see next, is um, the challenge is, and this is really a challenge, is that we, a lot of times we let our circumstances drive us instead of letting the purposes of God in our lives drive us. So let's start with this. It says that God did unusual miracles through Paul. Now, let me tell you something. The, the Bible's originally lit, written in the Greek language. Uh, the New Testament was written in the Greek language, I should say. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Um, and it says that God did unusual miracles. You, uh, you know what that word unusual means? Get ready. It means unusual. Uh, also translated as not usual. Um, it's out of the ordinary. Now, the reason I say that is because it's amazing to me how people will take something in the Bible that clearly is not a normal occurrence and make it a normal thing. So years ago, um, I get a handkerchief in the mail. Like I get this little package in the mail from a ministry uh, and I open it and it's a handkerchief quoting this verse that God did unusual miracles through Paul and even people uh, that handkerchiefs and aprons that he, he used were used to heal people. And so um, they said, hey, they read this verse. So like, here's a handkerchief. And, um, you know, if you will send a donation to our ministry, it will activate the handkerchief for your healing. And I'm like, wow, I've never gotten a handkerchief that could be activated before. Now, and I, my only experience with a handkerchief was my dad. My dad never went anywhere without a handkerchief. It was just, he's so old school about things. And so 
I remember showing up at my dad's house and uh, he had just woken up because it was about noon. Um, because that's, you know, you know how older people, they're like, you know, wake up at like four in the morning. My dad would like go to bed. My dad was basically a teenager until the day he died. Um, he was a, he would go to bed. Uh, he would drink a shot of Cuban coffee at midnight and then go to sleep. Like, <laughs> just to like soothe the bones. And then he would go to sleep and wake up at noon. Um, uh, this is, of course, after he retired. And, um, but anyway, but I remember showing up at his house at lunchtime and he's like in his pajamas. And, uh, and then he pulls out a handkerchief. And I'm like, you sleep with this thing? And anyway, so nonetheless, uh, but there's several problems here with this package that I received. Um, the first is, is that it's not a handkerchief like we would understand. It was a cloth that was used um, to handle sweat. So you would wrap it around your head and it would catch the sweat. It, so first problem is if you sent me, if they had sent me a sweat band, that was probably more accurate than a handkerchief. So I'm gonna have to take some points off there, strike one. The other thing is it said that I would have to activate it. I'm sorry, that's strike two because God is the one that's activating not Paul or anybody else. And lastly, it was only activated through a donation to their ministry. Strike three, I'm out. But I kept it because I used to keep, I used to keep a folder of the weird uh, things that would show up. So I just kept it around. And then um, probably about a year later, um, I got another thing in the mail from the same people. But this time it was just a letter. And the letter at the bottom of it, it had like this little thing that you would cut out. And it said, this is your... Uh, handkerchief. So now the handkerchief had gone from a real handkerchief to just a thing I had to cut out. Like, you know, but listen, budget cuts are real. And that's just what's going down. And so anyway, so I had to cut the portion. And then, of course, I still have to give the donation. I still had to activate it. And um, now, let me, um, let me I I explain. And I don't have, my, I don't have my, my folder of the weird. I don't even know what happened to it. But anyway, but let me tell you why, why it's being recorded. And this is important. Because if it's like, if it's unusual, like, why is it even recorded? It's recording because number one, it's showing us how fruitful Paul's ministry was during his time at Ephesus. And remember, at this time, he's writing the book of 1 Corinthians, his letter to the Corinthians, where he spends three chapters talking about spiritual gifts and the proper use of spiritual gifts. But it's also giving us some context for what Luke is going to tell us next, which is what happens in verse 13. So check this out real quick. It says this, then... Um, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call, um, uh, to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were also seven sons of Siva, a chief Jewish priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And then the man in whom was the evil spirit, leapt on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Don't you wish Instagram existed so somebody could just like, I'm going live in Ephesus, you know. Anyway, this is like one of the few moments where, where social media would have been helpful. Anyway, so verse 17, so this became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds also. Many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So... The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, this is where we're going to make our initial descent here, all right? 
This is one of the funnier moments of the Bible for me. These seven young guys that are sons of a, um, uh, one of the chief priests, uh, they are traveling evangelists. And by the way, that was pretty common in the ancient world, especially in Jewish circles, that there would be these Jewish exorcists who would travel around to cities where there was a bigger Jewish population, um, especially in a city like Ephesus where there was so much pagan worship due to the, uh, the Temple of Diana, which we'll talk about next time, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But they are trying to cast out a demon. They can't. So then they're like, you know what? We're, we, you can't, we cast you out by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, these guys don't believe in Jesus, but they're just um, in, invoking Jesus's name. And I love that this, this demoniac says, um, and by the way, it's two different words in Greek where he says, Jesus, I know the word is gnosko, which means um, to, to, to have no, real, like, deep knowledge of. So the demon's like, oh, we have deep knowledge of who Jesus is. And then he says, and Paul, I know, the, the Greek word is epistemi, which means I'm acquainted with him. So Jesus, oh yeah, we know him. Paul, I'm acquainted with him, but who are you? And, and then uh, the demoniac decides to start beating on these seven brothers. And the, if we could just have seen that, uh, one dude just wailing on seven brothers to the point where they end up naked, running out of this house. I mean, this is just amazing. It says that they were um, naked and wounded. And the, <laughs> the word wounded is this Greek word uh, traumatizo, where we, get our, uh, where we get our English word traumatized. And so they were not only beat up, but they were like emotionally beat up afterwards. Like, I don't know what's going on here. So, because uh, they had to change their career from exorcist to streaker. And um, <laughs> sorry, it's just the naked truth. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was bad, uh, but I'm contractually obligated to tell that joke. So anyway, now, so, <laughs> so they, but can I tell you something that I love about this scene? It brings up an important point I don't want you to miss. The demon knew Paul. The demon knew Jesus. And you know what that means? That your name isn't just known in heaven. It's known in hell too. And I like that. Now, but I want you to notice what happens is that this, this scene that wasn't really meant to glorify Jesus now does. And now this whole region is just um, lit up by the fact that Jesus is transforming people, that there's a spiritual reality of what's going on. And then people just start taking out all their pagan books, their occultic practices, and burning them up. And it was a sign that they were letting go of that old life. And there's a powerful point here, and this is what I want to close with. If you want to grow spiritually, sometimes there's things in the past that we have to say goodbye to. And sometimes it's, it's, it's a group of people that we have to say goodbye to. It's a relationship. It's false beliefs that we've believed. And sometimes it's spiritual stuff like this that's holding us back. And Luke says, this is the amount that was burned, that, that we get to the, to, the, to the end there. And he says that it was, it all. if we were to value all this up, it was 50,000 pieces of silver. It, we're not told what type of coin this was, but if it was the most common silver coin, which was the Greek drachma, it would be the equivalent of 137 years wages. That's a lot of drachmas, all right? That's a lot of cash that's being burnt up. But sometimes there's a cost to saying goodbye to the past. Now, I, I've talked about some of this in the past where it, I, I've talked about I was in a Christian band and um, we put out a couple of albums. And uh, there's a part of the story I don't tell, and I just don't want to, like, magnify that part of my life. I, 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 listen, if you're a believer, the best part of your life is ahead of you, um, not behind you. So, 
But before I was in a Christian, uh, before I was a Christian, I was a musician, and I had um, I was in a rock band that was on the verge of getting a record deal. Um, we we got really popular in South Florida, and um, we we got the biggest management that was here. Uh, there was only three bands. Um, uh, this band called the Mavericks, which is a country band that's really popular. Us and a band called Marilyn Manson uh, that you may have heard of. And um, so we were playing all these music showcases, meeting record company executives. I remember one night we were playing a show uh, in, um, in Miami Beach and um, one of these record company executives introduces himself to me and he tells me his name and I'm like, hey, I recognize your name. Uh, I'm like, didn't you discover you two? And he's like, yeah, that was me. And uh, so anyway, and he was there to see our band and let us know that he was really interested in making us uh, a, an offer on a record deal. And um, in the middle of all of this, um, I become a Christian. And as the weeks go by, I become more and more uncomfortable with the life that I had been living. Um, and I wanted to follow Jesus. And I realized that the, the trajectory that my life was on and following Jesus were not parallel paths. I mean, I, I was gonna have to make a choice. And so I made the decision that I was gonna leave this band and I, I was gonna um, serve the Lord, however. And, um, but when I, when I told these guys that I was, and they thought I was insane, because it's like, don't you realize that this is what everybody, this every band, every guy you know that's a musician, this is what they're waiting for. All these people that you've met, all these executives that are going to sign us and are offering us whatever, this is, this is everything you've wanted since you were 13 years old. Um, and when I said goodbye um, to, to that, to my role in the band, I thought I was saying goodbye to my identity as a musician, my passion, and the only thing I've wanted to do, like I said, since I was 13 years old. And people thought I was crazy, like, don't you realize you're getting to the top of the ladder? But see, it doesn't matter if you get to the top of the ladder if it's leaning up against the wrong wall. And, um, and so um, I left that band. And, um, and, you know, the thing about leaving that band is you don't just leave your band. These are your friends. And, and so every person that I knew and was a, a friend of mine, I, I, was, um, I, I said goodbye to all of it. I mean, I had, uh, it was, my wife and I had come to know Jesus at the same time we were dating. So it was us. That's it. Uh, so we had no friends. Um, and because everybody else that we knew wasn't a Christian. And then um, we started sharing the gospel with some, some people that we knew, some of our family and all that. And then they started coming to know Jesus. And then one day I was, in, um, I was at church and the church had a little bookstore and I was in the bookstore and the, um, these couple of guys walk up to me and they say, hey, is your name Bob? And I said, yeah. And they're like, oh, are you in this band? I said, yeah. And, uh, and they said, you know, we heard that you became a Christian, but we didn't believe them. Uh, because we're like, yeah, there's no way that guy came to know Jesus. And uh, that, not in that band. And, uh, and so um, anyway, they invited us out and uh, we started hanging out with them. And they, they were in a band and I went to see their band play. And then their guitar player left. Like, we'd love for you to join our band as a guitar player. And then uh, we ended up signing a record deal and, and the rest was history. But, um, and, and, here's, and here's my point in, in what I'm saying is sometimes you have to do hard things because it's the only way to grow up. It's the only way to walk with God. It's the only way to be who he's called you to be. And what I learned was this, and this is what I'm hoping you get out of this. When I said goodbye to the life that I was living, what God had for me was greater than anything I could have imagined. Because you know what's weird of how things go and how the story ends? That band that was, we were meeting all these people, the band never got signed. The band never got a record deal. Shortly after I left, um, the other guitar player uh, left 
uh, the band ended up joining Marilyn Manson as their bass player and was their bass player and major songwriter for years. And our singer in the band would tell people, man, I lost one to Jesus and the other to the devil. And, uh, and <laughs> that's, that's fairly accurate. That's fairly accurate. Um, <laughs> but can I tell you something? I look back now and I, I wasn't losing anything. I thought I was in the beginning when I was saying goodbye. But I wasn't losing anything. I had everything to gain. And listen, can I just share this with you as we close is that maybe that's you today. That maybe you need to give your life to Jesus or give that part of your life to Jesus that you haven't given over to him, um, that you've kept from him, that this could be the moment. Just like everybody there in Ephesus when they're like, hey, take this. I don't want it anymore. I'm, I want to walk with God. That maybe this is our moment to say goodbye to the past and experience the life that Jesus has for us because it's, it's better than anything we could ask, think, or imagine. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that promise, that truth, that reality. And so we're asking, Lord, that you would do that great work in us, uh, that we would be resilient enough to do hard things, that we might experience everything that you have for us. We're grateful, God, that you hear us, that you love us, and you want to transform us if we're open and ready and willing. And so we pray it in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.